Today I will be reading John 14, 15 through 17. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another paraclete, to be with you forever. This is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, because he abides with you, and he will be in you. The word of the Lord. Good morning, Highland. Before we begin the sermon, I want to say something that's very important, and I'd, I'd like you to listen carefully. On February 23rd, a 25-year-old unarmed man was jogging through a neighborhood in Brunswick, Georgia. He was pursued by two armed men who confronted him. Ahmad Aubrey died of three gunshot wounds. The death might have gone unnoticed and without any attempt at justice had a video not been released. 75 days after Ahmad was killed, the two armed men were arrested. Ahmad was black, the two men were white. We live in a country where the color of your skin determines the quality of the justice you receive. On Monday of this week, Christian Cooper was bird watching in Central Park when he asked a woman to keep her dog on its leash. The altercation led to her calling uh, the police, claiming an African American man is threatening her life. Christian Cooper worked for Marvel Comics. He also went to Harvard, by the way. She was white. He is black. If he had not had a video of the event, her lies would have led to a very different outcome of the story. We live in a country where the color of your skin determines your credibility. Also on Monday, George Floyd died while in police custody. A viral video of the incident shows the police officer kneeling on the neck of Mr. Floyd for 10 minutes while he tells the officer he can't breathe, while he asks for water, while he cries out for his mother. George Floyd is black. This constellation of racist behavior is contemptible, contemptible, it's despicable, and it's sin. And the worst part about it is it happens all the time. We can do better. We can do better as a society, and we can do better as people, and we can do better as a church. We do not yet live in a country that is even close to equitable. My brothers and sisters of color have had to live with these stories for their entire lives. And it's only with the advent of social media and cell phones with cameras that white America is waking up to the reality that people of color have lived with. I love to jog, and I have never feared for my safety while I lace up my sneakers. And just because it doesn't affect me personally doesn't mean I am not called to action. There is no doubt that we live in a broken world full of broken people. But that doesn't mean we can't speak out for what is right and racism is wrong. We can do better. And so when you find yourself grieving this loss of life, this loss of potential, know that God grieves with you. God was with George Floyd when he took his last breath. 
God was furious when lies were told about Christian Cooper and God witnessed the blood that came from Ahmed Aubrey's chest. God sees you. Our cry is with the author of of Psalm 13 who asks, how long, O Lord, must we endure this? Our frustration is with Amos as he calls for justice and the end of inequality. And like Paul in Ephesians, our fight is not against the flesh and blood, but against the powers, the rulers, and the principalities of this dark world. We fight against the powers with truth. We are all created to bear the image of God. And we we speak out when there is something wrong and we expose the work of evil. We raise our children and our grandchildren to be different. We have eyes that sees injustice, racism, and oppression. And we have the courage to stand with those who are suffering. And so I want to encourage you to think about, to consider what God is calling you to do. How God is calling you to grow. And it all begins, all of our action begins when we rest in prayer. So I want to call us to prayer first. Father God, we long for this world to be made right. We long for you to be seated as the king of this world, as you are the king of heaven. We pray that your kingdom is revealed and unfolded all around us that every injustice is made right. Every heart is restored. And that your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we pray for our hearts. We confess that sometimes, more often than we'd like, we are racist. We are evil. Please take our broken offering. Please heal it and make it something new. It's through Christ we pray. And the church says, amen. We're beginning a new series this week, and it's going to carry us through most of the summer. We've called it Rolodex, and it occurs to me that you may not know actually what a Rolodex is. Now, I hate it when preachers pull this move of like, there used to be this thing called an 8-track, and it was a box, and it could play music. You had to plug it into your uh, car, and just that's cheesy, but... Seriously, you may not know what a Rolodex is. It was just this like little turny thing that sat on people's desks and it had these slots for cards. And so you could just keep all of your cards organized in a nice way. It would turn really quickly. It was kind of a cool little wheel. But what was important about a Rolodex is not how it spun, but the names that were on the cards, the people that you could call, the people that you could connect with. And part of what it means to be a Christian is is that this isn't a solo sport. This is something that we do together. The journey that you're taking from this moment towards heaven isn't something you're taking by yourself. You need a team. You need a a squad. And so what we're going to do this summer is explore some of the different people that you need in your life to help you most fully reflect the image of God. David Brooks wrote this fascinating article in The Atlantic a few months ago. It had the most captivating title. It said, the nuclear family was a mistake. 
Now, your nuclear family is, is the people that live in, in your house. For most of us, that's, that's your folks and the kids, and, and that's about it. That's the only people that live in your house. There may be a few others. And that's kind of the way it is for a lot of us in America, especially if you kind of roll the clock back 30 years. But when a lot of us think of family, we have that kind of nostalgic sense. And, and maybe it's that Norman Rockwell painting of Thanksgiving where everyone's gathered around the table and there's this big, beautiful turkey. And the, the, you know, the grandfather is standing up to, to, to say a prayer or to offer a, a blessing. Uh, Brooks tells us about a movie that was made in 1990 called Avalon. And it was the story of this family that immigrated, the whole family immigrated together uh, from uh, Western Europe to, to America. And, and they started this wallpapering business. And the story begins with the family is very close-knit and they're all working really hard together to get this wallpapering business off the ground. And they begin to get married and they have kids. They're all really close. They live near each other. And it's kind of this wonderful experience. But as the movie continues, the family begins to fragment one of the kids takes a job and, and moves out of state. And little by little, as the story progresses, you kind of see the effect of, of what happens to that family as they, they just grow apart. They separate from one another. The movie ends with uh, one of the sons. He's, he's living in a nursing home, and he's all by himself in a room sitting in a wheelchair. And, and he says to himself, in the end, you spend everything you've ever saved, sell everything you've ever owned, just to exist in a place like this. It used to be that extended families were centered economically around one thing. It was a, it was a farm or it was a business. And, and everybody had to work together and to cooperate to make that business uh, successful. But something interesting happened in, in the 1940s and 50s. The average uh, family began to make four times as much as they did when their parents were the same age. And suddenly all that money was able to buy them more privacy and so they moved into their own houses where they might have had to share in the past. Or they moved to their own space, their own land where uh, they might have had to share. The new industrial economy allowed them to move to different places and, and start up over again. And not everything was great about that previous family system. You, you were kind of stuck with the people that you were born with. You didn't really get to, to choose the people that you wanted to work with. And, and not everybody had the same amount of freedoms or, or ability. But kids could run from one house to the other, and it didn't really matter where they were when they got hungry. They could just open up the fridge and, and eat something. And, and, and families, those extended family systems could handle stress and loss much more easily than nuclear families could. You could lose a job and your family system could help you keep you afloat until you got things back together. The nuclear family withered all of those ties. And it created this uh, severely limited social relationships. The nuclear family has never been enough. I know that might sound strange to you. Your family is not enough. Before AC and Cable, 
Uh, people's families would sit out on the stoops and talk to their neighbors, and they knew one another much closer than they used to. But, but in the 60s and 70s, people began to move inside, and, and their family system wasn't oriented around stories as much as they were oriented around television, and everybody would eat together watching the same TV. But uh, my guess is, is that your experience is not that everybody is watching the same TV. I think that TV's still on. Everybody's just looking at their own screens, if they're even in the same room anymore. That myth of rugged American individualism isn't real and it isn't healthy. You need a tribe. You need kin. You need a crew. What Brooks calls, he calls it a forged family. And I love that phrase because it points to the intentionality of it. It's something that takes work and commitment through the heat of fear and suffering. Together, a new bond is formed that is stronger than the two parts alone. It's a forged family. It's the people who gently told me to grow up. People who taught me how to navigate a P-trap and and which one is the grounding wire, which fork to use at a fancy party. It's the people who listened and cared. People who needed love and protection, and what little wisdom I had to offer. I grew up in one of those nuclear families with all of my extended family days travel apart, and I found in that forged family of my home church people that loved me. The benefit of a forged family is you don't have to bear all that weight yourself. This is true, I think, for my life, even in the last 12 weeks, when we began to quarantine, we were all stuck in that same house, uh, me and, and my family, and we were all just trying to make it together. And, and there was this moment about three weeks in where we walked across the street and we met uh, the, the family that's, uh, that lived over there, and they had moved in about the same time we did. He's a, a pilot over at Dias, and we were just kind of talking, socially distancing, doing everything right. But my two boys, I looked down, and they have begun to wrestle their daughter. And then I had this moment of like fear and embarrassment because we just broke this huge quarantine thing and we just kind of went with it. And, and there are now our quarantine buddies and we hang out with them and we've gotten to know them. And it's, it's made our lives in our house a lot easier. You need a tribe. You need kin. You need a crew. I mean, you love a good heist movie the way that I love a good heist movie. And let's unpack that for a just, just a minute. The heist movie always needs the team. You got to have the hacker that can get into the computer system and turn off the alarm. You got to have the con man that convinces someone to do something that they shouldn't do. You got to have the pit pocket who able to come in there and, and steal the key code from someone else. That athletic oddity that's able to do something really weird with their body that nobody else can do. And you need that leader that's going to keep them all together. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul describes the church as a body that is being grown and knit together as each one does their part. And the only way that we can grow into what God intends for us to be is when we use our gifts and our talents for and with one another. I want to connect to Zane's sermon last week. He did an incredible job. There is that certain mystery of Jesus' ascension. And that's Acts chapter 1. You follow that to the next page to Acts chapter 2. You hit Pentecost. 
It's, it's this Sunday. It's today. It's, it's a Sunday when we celebrate the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the disciples in Acts chapter 2. And I, I think that the Holy Spirit is perhaps the most important relationship that you will ever have in your life. You need a paraclete. And that was the reading from John chapter 14 that we just heard. John mentions the word paraclete five times in three chapters in the gospel. So what is a paraclete? A a paraclete is a, a mediator, an intercessor, a helper, an advocate, a comforter. It's the word that Jesus chooses when Jesus wants to describe what the Holy Spirit does. How the Holy Spirit functions. And so rather than try to give you some sort of legal definition of of a paraclete, let me tell you two stories. There's this really quiet and effective ministry that happens here at, at Highland, and they partner with the courts. It's called a CASA, a Court Appointed Special Advocate. And basically, it's a person who walks beside a foster child as they are experiencing the most stressful and scary part of their life. And they love them, and they care for them. They pay attention to them and make sure they don't get lost or or confused, and they stand up for them in court and with them so that they're not alone. Akasa is is an advocate. It's it's a story I experienced when I was about uh, 22 years old. Uh, Natalie and I uh, were working at a church and um, there was a woman there named Stephanie and, and Stephanie had come so far in her life. She had given herself over to Christ and, and she was leading her family, her son, in this very effective way of, of finding who she is in God. But she had a past and she had a history and, and part of her history was her sister and her sister had made some really tough choices and, and continued to make a few bad decisions And one of the things that she would do is steal Stephanie's identity. And so she used Stephanie's social security number to to open up her her electricity bill, the utilities on the house that she was staying in. She didn't ever pay those bills because it wasn't on her, it was on Stephanie. And so sure enough, the utility company called Stephanie up and said, hey, you owe us this crazy amount of money. You owe us eight months worth of unpaid electricity bills. And Stephanie said, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't live at that place. I've never been there. I don't have an account with you. And they said, really? Is this your social security number? And Stephanie's face fell. It was her sister. She said, my sister's stolen my identity. I had nothing to do with this. I'm really sorry. What can we do? And the person at the utility company said, just get proof. Get evidence from the landlord that, that this isn't you and we'll forgive the bill. We'll wipe it clean. And so Stephanie goes to the to landlord and says, hey, my sister stole my identity. Would you please sign this letter that says that I am, I'm not the person that rented from you. It's, it's not who I am. And the landlord was so frustrated with her sister's behavior, so frustrated with it, because it wasn't the only bad thing that her sister had done at that place was not pay the utility bill, that, that they said, no, I'm not going to help you. This is your problem. You deal with it. And so... And this is the coolest thing that I did that entire year. I, I put on a suit. I hadn't, I hadn't worn a suit in like three years, but I put on a suit and a tie 
And I, and I, I brought one of those little attache deals that had the paper inside. And I, I knocked on the landlord's door and I said, hi, my name is Shane Hughes. I'm, I'm representing my friend. Would you please sign this document? She had nothing to do with this. Would you please sign it? And the landlord, I don't know if he just wanted me to get him off his porch or just wanted to be done with it, said fine and signed it. I was able to be a helper. I was able to be a paraclete. Across the gospel of John, the spirit is of truth. It's the thing that helps you discern truth. It helps you teach someone else about God. And You may have experienced this in your own life. Have you ever had one of those moments where you, you fell into a certain moment in a conversation with someone and you realized that God had been working in their life up to a certain point and that you are going to be a part of what happens next, that the thing that you say in this moment is going to change their life, it's going to make things better, you get to partner with God in, in, in the redemption of this person? And you know exactly what to say. It wasn't what you would have said normally. It's not even what you think. But in that moment, it's like somebody's whispering in your ear. Have you ever had that moment? Have you ever had that moment when that, that scripture that you memorized in like the third grade that you haven't thought of in 20 years suddenly comes back and it's absolutely clear in your mind and you know exactly how you need to use it? That's the paraclete. The promise of Jesus is... I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming for you. But I think the most fascinating thing about this, this verse is this little phrase. I will send you another paraclete. Who or what is the first? What was the other paraclete? Well, it's God. God was the paraclete for Israel who comforted them in their suffering, who was present to them in their hurt, who called them out to take them to a better place. The paraclete is Jesus. Jesus was the one who interceded for Israel and for all of us, who was our helper, who showed us the way of how to live life in a lockstep with God. And my guess is you may have had more than one paraclete in your life. But the most important one, by far, is the Spirit. It is impossible to imagine Christian lives without Holy Spirit presence. Look, I'm a, I'm a person that tends toward pessimism. That's just in my nature. If things are going well, I'm pretty sure that's going to end and it's going to get lousy. If things are going lousy, I'm ready for it to get a little bit worse. That's just the way I am. There's nothing I can do about it. It's, it's just my nature. But because of the presence of the Spirit, that has changed me. Because the end of my story isn't disaster and loss. The end of my story is God. There is no being in the universe that has higher expectations for the capabilities of humanity and lower expectations for a collective and individual effort than Jesus. God believes that we can partner with him and heal the racism in our society. God believes that human hearts can choose the good. Can't do it by themselves. Empowered by the Spirit. God believes that can happen. But God also loves us every step of the way.
and every terrible thing that is said, every hurtful action that's made. And God loves us anyway. It's true of every person that Jesus met. From the learned and noble scholar slipping into the night to ask him questions to the accused and defenseless adulterer thrown down in public before him. Pericletes change our reality. They change our story. And, and part of the reason I feel that way is because I know how intensely and completely that the Spirit has transformed my fear to courage. Our capability to humility and anxiety to peace. And so I want you to do something with me as, as we journey through this series together. And an email you're going to get today, there's going to be an attachment. It's this, it's this little bookmark. And if you, if you don't get the email, you can go to highlandchurch.org slash Rolodex. And you can download a copy. And I want you to print it out. And I want you to stick this in your Bible. And I want you to, uh, as we go through this series together, I want you to reflect about who is that person in your life. Now, for this first one, the paraclete is the Holy Spirit. But there may be somebody else in your life that has been your advocate. There may have been somebody else in your life that is your comforter. And if you want to, you can put that name down too. I hope that you stay with us through this entire series. And, and we learn together how we get to heaven. Because the only way we get there is together. Let's sing.